our focus is very much on communion, the power, the purpose attached to communion. We're going to be exploring 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 through 34 with a core focus on verse 28. And the title of my message is The Pathway to Forgiveness, Self-Examination. And so I have only one objective for us in our time together this afternoon, and that's to discover exactly what is that pathway. How do we establish and live in that freedom? And I believe it will be the result of self-examination, looking at our inner life. Now, self-examination is, is an unavoidable reality for believers. And if it's completed correctly, it will produce only one outcome. It will lead us even closer to Christ. And so I want to start this afternoon with a, a genuine question, a deep, potentially very intentional question for your consideration. In your life today, who needs your forgiveness? Now, you might stand there or sit there and be watching online and thinking, well, hang on a minute, Scott. That question presupposes that there is someone I need to forgive. And I would suggest the answer is unequivocally yes for every single person. Forgiveness is a, a funny topic. It's the central theme of our faith. And yet it's something that we often neglect to preach about, talk about, demonstrate in our lives. Now, we need to be honest right here, right now, because if we sit and say, well, there's nobody, then the rest of our time together will be futile and wasted. Now, I'm not suggesting that you need to think about forgiving the person that cut you in the line at the supermarket or the person that's sitting in your favorite seat in church because you're watching from home today. No, I'm talking about the person or people who have scarred your life beyond recognition. The people that spoke lies, that sowed deception, that led you astray in moments of your life that brought quantifiable change to how you now subsequently interact with people. The moments of hesitation when somebody wants to do something nice for you because you're wondering what their real motive is. I'm talking about those moments where your first default position is distrust. That is not the default heart position of somebody who is in Christ. It should be to trust. It should be to love. It should be to connect more intentionally. Now, hear me out here. We cannot allow our feelings and our emotions to become our moral compass. Do you know why? They lie to you. <laughs> Have you ever found that? Feelings and emotions? If we allow them to, they lie to us. They misguide us. They mislead us. They lead us astray. They don't allow us to have correct biblical thinking. And if that seeps into our heart and mind, then it shapes our character, our outlook, how we interact with every single person that we find ourselves in. We've just heard that song by Hillsong, Cornerstone, the opening words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only trust in Jesus' name. Famous words from the hymn. It's a reminder for us that our trust has to be 
in God and God alone. But today, where you are, who has offended you? Who has upset you, lied about you? These situations are supremely powerful in our lives and have the ability to change us ultimately for the worse. And I believe that if we don't take time to examine what's in our heart, to intentionally explore the deepest recesses of our heart and establish where that change happened, where that hurt occurred, where that offense creeped in, we will never find that freedom. And we will live in a permanent state of scarring and pain. It is possible to be free. Amen? The Bible says it so clearly. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. We do not need to believe the lie of the enemy that we need to stay where we are. That we need to have that posture of distrust. That we need to shrink away from moments of bravery in our Christian journey that we need to be arrogant or aggressive with people that don't align with our theological perspectives. No, God does and can change us. The challenge for us is are we prepared to be vulnerable? Or is our default position, well, I'm just going to manufacture who I should be on Sundays. You know, I've got to be my Sunday best. Or, you know, generate a certain um, character or disposition online. No, I'm talking about the real you. I'm talking about the one that Jesus calls you to be. The one you are when you're at home, in that secret place with God. The one when you're in fellowship with other believers. You cannot stop somebody's behavior towards you, but you can change how you choose to deal with it. We need to learn to respond and not react. And so I wonder today, as we go on this journey, that we can get back to that place of wholeness, freedom, and victory that we previously enjoyed before those moments of wounding and anguish. And so I want you all to take one moment right now where you are and imagine who and what you looked like one moment before you were last wounded, hurt, let down, disappointed, cheated on lied about, deceived, shamed in a situation. I guarantee a few things. You were freer, you were more whole, and you lived in greater levels of victory in every aspect of your life. And so with these considerations conveyed, I want to commend your bravery in just being here, whether you're watching online or whether you're here in the sanctuary, because We want to grow and mature in our walk with God. And yet some of us are going to be very, very conscious at the end of our time together that this journey may illuminate some bad patterns of thinking, some unhealthy heart attitudes, some negative presuppositions that we possess in certain scenarios and situations that are neither helpful nor wholesome to our spiritual growth. And so I want you all to remain very, very mindful this afternoon that your level of honesty and vulnerability with yourself will directly define and determine the level of the progress in your freedom, your victory and wholeness that we will ultimately walk in. And here is the reality. Everywhere that Jesus went, he brought transformation. Everywhere. 
You find me story in scripture where Jesus brought just a modicum of change. He brought transformation, transformation to people's lives, physically, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, financially, communities, individually, it doesn't matter. And so the goal is transformation today. I'm not looking to shape your thinking a little bit. I'm looking for you to take intentional application steps in how you examine your life and your heart that will help you find that freedom. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, reading verses 27 through 34. Verses 23 through 26, we all know well words for our communion time together. I'm reading the NIV. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 34. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you shall all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further direction. Now, what I find stark here is that Paul makes no attempt to be kind of polite and courteous in his communication. He is finalizing the end of this chapter. He is speaking to the people at Corinth who have developed horrendous attitudes of selfishness, of arrogance, of looking after themselves, neglecting the needs of others. And so he's like, hang on a minute, I need to speak into this attitude and this mindset that we can, as Christians, adopt in our lives. But what I find also very significant for us is that we cannot allow communion to become some feeble, ritualistic, rhetoric ceremony that we have once a month. Oh yes, so the first Sunday of the month at church, we have communion. And it's just some legalistic thing that confines it to the margins of our spiritual growth and journey. Because Paul is very clear here. He is cautioning us against the very thing that I've just mentioned. He's challenging the church at Corinth about their attitudes. They've been lackluster in their efforts to serve others. They've been looking after self. They've been a bit selfish. And I just wonder, maybe, is there any parallels in our lives today? Because the moment we dilute the power of our corporate communion together, we diminish the power of what God can do in our lives. We relegate its authority to the margins of our spiritual lives. And if we do that, we are essentially stating that the life and death of Jesus Christ has become meaningless to us, which doesn't work for anyone that's a Christian. But here's the other reality. Proper particip participation presupposes proper self-examination because God is always interested in the condition and the posture of our heart. 
You know, when all is said and done, that's all he wants. When all is said and done. Now, we could argue theologically about many, many other aspects of that statement. But at the very center, at the very core, it's your heart. We know in in Scripture, the Bible says so clearly, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we speak, we believe and we live out. What we live out is a result of our actions and our thoughts. So there are two distinct principles or features, if you like, when we consider examining the inner life. Number one, surprise, surprise, it is a personal responsibility. We see right the way through Scripture the commandment to examine ourselves, to identify the flaws, the failures, the fallacies in our thinking and in our attitudes. Now, guaranteed, you will know your heart better than I do, but we both know that the Lord also knows your heart better than you do. And that's what God is interested in. It's not your pastor's responsibility to appraise you or to examine your heart. Paul leaves no doubt where the totality of the responsibility lies. It resides in you and it resides in me. And seemingly, we can only approach communion after we've done that self-examination. And so there's one sobering thought in that. When you go on this exercise and this journey of self-examination, you do it alone. You know why? Because in doing it alone, you remove all the other voices, you remove all the other opinions that might be competing for airtime and attention in your own heart and mind. And do you know what it leaves you with? It leaves you with the sobering reality of facing who and what you really are. It's like holding up a mirror in front of your face. You get to see all the imperfections, or maybe it's just me, the scar on the side of my face, the spot where I haven't shaved right, all those things. And here's the other thought. The closer that mirror is, the starker it is. The further away it is, the less you see of the imperfections in your own heart and in your own life. Do you know what it is? It's an incredibly humbling experience if it's done properly because it forces you to make a choice and a decision in that moment. Am I really who I think I am? Is what's going on inside me emerging out in how I live my life as a Christian? Am I, am I as loving as I think I am? Am I as kind as I think I am? I am, am I as compassionate and considerate as I think I am? Because, you know, we've got bias. You know, ask any manager, ask any CEO, ask any boss in any department, in any factor of life, when they do annual appraisals. The staff member's record is always better than what the line manager says. <laughs> Eight times out of ten. Eight times out of ten. We always think we're doing better than we actually are. And it's only when somebody else shines a light, looks through it through another lens, gives it a second pair of eyes, that we start to see that there's actually a bit of a gap. There's actually a bit of a gap between what we think we're living out and what we're actually living out. And so it forces us to face up to the reality of who we really are. And for most of us, we think we're good, but ultimately we can still grow 
in that journey. And so the, the default position for most of us is we want to be positive. We want to be affirming. We want to think that we're doing well in these moments and that we would consider self-examination as a hindrance to our progress. But it's not. It is an avenue to progress. It is a platform upon which you can start to see where the deficiencies are and start to grow in those areas of our lives. Because in that moment, when it's you and you alone, and there's no other voices, and you're faced with the reality of who you really are and what's really going on inside you, you have one of two choices. You can accept that reality, or you lie to yourself, and you start to buy into that lie. So do you want to live from a place of truth? no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging that is? Or do you want to live from a place of perceived truth that isn't actually reality in our lives? You know, and that's why I don't think churches, pastors, leaders don't preach about self-examination because we probably won't like the results. I didn't. Because it forces us. Denial, Denial, delusion, or truth. May we be released from denial and delusion in Jesus' name. Because there's no outs. There's no extenuating circumstances. There's no get-out clauses. There's nothing that we can present in that moment that lets us get away with it. It's like when you take a photograph. Take it from my left side. Why? That's my better side. No, that's you. (laughs) You just don't want to accept the reality in that moment. So we airbrush them, filter them, Photoshop them, whatever. Why? Because we don't want to face up to the reality of who we are. If you want to grow in your Christian journey, if you want to mature, if you want to walk in forgiveness, you are going to have to face up to the deficiencies and the flaws in your own life. Have you ever considered that God loves you so much that he will only highlight enough sin in your own life that you can handle it in order to humble you, not humiliate you. The goal of self-examination is not to tear yourself apart, be riddled with shame and guilt and condemnation. The goal of self-examination is to explore and examine what's really in your heart and start to take intentional, consistent steps to address where the faults and the flaws are so that you can become more like Jesus. I mean, this is Paul speaking, literally the greatest religious authority figure on the earth after Christ. I mean, that's, it's so clear. And so if you want any evidence that it's personal, examine the scriptures. If you don't believe me, just examine the scriptures. I'll give you a couple of examples. David in Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock. He doesn't start with the Lord is our rock. It's personal. It's intimate to David. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. The Lord is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I mean, wow, that is as individualistic as you can possibly find. Paul himself informed his own protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, I know whom I have believed. It's personal. This is not a corporate moment. Please, friends, do not fail yourself in this process. The moment you submit wholeheartedly to this process with honesty, in that moment you deliver yourself from the spirit of deception. Anything less than full honesty 
and vulnerability will result in failure and you will only find yourself reinforcing the lies that are in your mind. Now, in the cold light of day, if we take a moment here to remove the tension and the testing for just a moment, I'm sure all of us here can agree that if God's word instructs us to do something, there has got to be something positive to come from that process, right? You know, no matter how awkward, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging we might find it, and potentially the outcomes or the conclusions that we may draw, there's one thing that we can all agree on. If God's word says it, there's got to be a spiritual benefit and principle attached to it in our lives. I'm fully persuaded that there's other benefits, but I encourage you, if nothing else, do it to honor God's word in your life. The second consideration is the process is arduous. Hello, Pastor Colin has been sharing today that living for Christ is hard work. It is not going to get easier for us as Christians. And so you need to understand that the process is going to be difficult. Do not fall into the trap of dismissing self-examination as some defeated position to embrace that you're somehow unworthy or that there's no need for it. Can I politely encourage you, ignore any Christian that tells you that there is no purpose in self-examination. The Word of God tells us and informs us of this. So don't accept somebody else's lie as your truth in your heart. It is a sobering yet a necessary reality for us. It will expose what is truly going on in our hearts, the signals of our hearts, the trust that we declare in Christ is now under scrutiny. And it is for this examination that we wrestle with in our own hearts and lives. Because you know, every time you expose your heart, every time you open yourself up to God, you allow the light and the truth of God's word to fill your heart and bring with it immeasurable assurances and confidence. Your soul will be awakened to the plan and purposes of God and you will emerge from that process transformed, renewed and liberated. Please don't give it a tokenistic cursory glance once in a while. This is not a tick box exercise that Paul is instructing us to do here. The easiest way to know if other people are doing it in their own lives is one thing, changed behavior. Now, tragic as this is, I know lots of Christians, 5, 10, 15, some even nearly 20 years, apparently knowing Jesus, nothing's changed. Now, I'm not alone when I say that. I would be surprised if there's anyone watching online or here in the building that didn't know at least one person. Now, somebody is going to have to reconcile that issue with me theologically. I don't understand, right, how you can know the creator of heaven and earth for 20 years and nothing changes. It's, it's madness. It doesn't make any sense. Why? I suppose my assessment would be that they have never trusted the process of self-examination. They've never taken the time to go, do I need to change my attitude here? Do I need to think about the way I treat this group of people over there? Do I need to shift the heart attitude that I demonstrate in moments that are tough and challenging in our lives? Don't be like that. We all know the song, just one touch from the king changes everything. 
Amen? Jesus came to change. There's not an area of your life, friends, that you don't examine. Your finances, social life, your work life, work balance life, your relationships. There's a lot of value in that examination and that exploration. But it's not something that we need to do each and every day. The goal is not to make an idol out of it, but it's to demonstrate true faith to it. And so I want us to recognize in our time this afternoon what communion actually achieves. Every time that we partake in communion, we're recognizing it as a sign of God's grace. We trust in God's righteousness, not in our own worthiness. We come in repentance to him, seeking mercy, seeking forgiveness. We don't disqualify ourselves, but that self-examination is needed in our lives. It prepares us to walk and approach the throne of God to embrace the elements of communion with clean hearts and a pure mind. It means also that we're encouraged to come with our needs, our issues. God wants to meet our needs. God alone can and does meet our needs. Communion is not a private event. It's an expression of the church. It's a corporate moment gathered together in the body of Christ, united for one thing. And we celebrate that thing together because God is good. And by examining ourselves, we do an infantry. We do a check, a mental check of everything that we've done this week, this month that hasn't pleased God. And we abandon it, we confess it, we repent of it, and we move forward. But we also get an opportunity to bring with it reconciliation and restoration one to another. So if there's someone that's caused a fault with you in the body of Christ, no better opportunity than corporate communion to find a moment to demonstrate the forgiveness that we need to do. Because it's only by examining ourselves, friends, that we will actually move forward. It's harsh, it's humbling, it's honest, and it's supremely necessary. So what have we ultimately learned in our time together this afternoon? We need to dissect our thoughts, our patterns of behavior, our thinking. Now, the purpose of self-examination is not to expose our sin, to generate bitterness or anger, resentment, hurt in our hearts, but it's actually to strengthen our weaknesses. God may well point out the moments of sin in your life, the strongholds of the mind, the issues that you've not reconciled, but it's in that moment that we perfectly position ourselves to find the freedom, the deliverance, the wholeness, and the victory that God has for us. Because you know why? The purpose of self-examination is always to lead us to him. A mature Christian will always seek to grow in grace, knowledge, and understanding. It is horribly insufficient. Please, whatever you do, don't do this. To settle for maintenance mode. You wouldn't do that in any other area of your life. Don't celebrate mediocrity. God has caused you to achieve so much more. God has a plan and a purpose. And so I want to finish with some thoughts about our inner life and about how we can, I guess, take a gauge, a temperature check of what's actually going on in our hearts and minds. Galatians 5 is a chapter devoted to freedom in Christ, living by the Spirit. The first verse tells us it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, potentially your translation for forbearance could read patience. The best translation is forbearance. But I want to finish our time together with a couple of questions and considerations for for your own lives. Is your life characterized by those qualities? Are those on display in your life? Or are they just fleeting moments here and there? Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. Summed up in two verses. Two verses that have the capacity and the capability to radically and permanently transform how we live our lives, how we see each other, how we see our own lives. Are those qualities absent from your inner life? Are they just on display on Sundays or in moments where you think you need to demonstrate them? God calls us to demonstrate them in each and every moment that we find ourselves in because it's in that moment that we self-examine ourselves to a point where we can find that pathway to forgiveness. Can I encourage you, if you perhaps don't have all those qualities on display but your heart longs for it, Do you know what that is? That is the sole result of you self-examining what's going on in your inner heart, what's going on in your life. And so we have the ability to embrace that newness of life that Paul describes in Romans 6, a life fully surrendered to God, transformation in our behavior, in our heart, that goes far beyond anything that we can offer in our own lives. And here's a final consideration In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul finishes that whole chapter, that whole thought climaxes in the final verse. And when I come, I will give further directions. So Paul is saying, until further notice, this is what you're called to do. This is what I have commanded you to do. No other instructions are presented. He doesn't give us any snapshot into what the future may look like. Every time that we take communion together, it is a necessary and needed reminder that it is the commonality of our faith in Jesus far outweighs and overcomes our differences and our difficulties. That must remain our focus. Christ built unity and we are called to not just attain and maintain it, but to develop and cultivate it in our own lives, at all costs, in today's prevailing society that promotes hyper-individualism, the erosion of family, be it biological or spiritual, we must pull together, set aside our differences, nail our hurts, our doubts, our fears, our pains to the cross of Calvary and embrace that unity. It is a timely reminder, communion, to keep the blood-stained cross of Calvary at the forefront of our mind. The cross before me, the world behind me. We sing and proclaim those words. We are making a declaration 
that nothing in and of this world is going to infect or impact our heart, our mind, and our walk with Christ. Friends, the goal of self-examination is to find that pathway to forgiveness. And time and time and time and again, we are going to find ourselves returning to the foot of the cross because it's all achieved in that moment by God's grace, the powerful sanctifier that presents those opportunities for us day by day to examine what's ultimately going on in our hearts, to present it to our loving Father who knows what's going on in our hearts and allow Him to show us that pathway that produces and facilitates forgiveness in our lives, that lets the glory of God shine from every aspect of our lives. And it's in that moment, friends, that we find that freedom, that victory, and that joy that we need to find in Christ Jesus.